The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist with a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to speak with Jennifer Browning. Jennifer is the executive director of the Biodiversity Project based in Chicago, Illinois, she brings with her a wealth of experience in environmental education. She has worked with the Field Museum, the National Wildlife Federation, the Chicago Botanic Center, USDA's National Forest Service, and the Nature Conservancy. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I want to talk about biodiversity. You know, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And the reason why I think biodiversity is important from a food standpoint is that it ensures that we have a wide variety of nutrients. And I fear that with the loss of biodiversity, we really lose resiliency as a population. Yes, I, I, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. There, especially as, you know, as we begin to see superbugs and things like that and viruses that are resistant to things, we know that with even within our food crop, if we're only growing one type of corn or two or three types of corn even, um, those are highly susceptible to one insect or pathogen or something coming in and wiping out all of the corn. And so um, in addition to the importance of the nutrients that we get from a diversity of corn, for example, that we're talking about, it's also a way to protect our food system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, I have to ask you, what led you to the Biodiversity Project? What interested you about working with this organization? It, you know, my background is in science, and I've always been quite passionate about the natural world. And as I said, I studied ecology. And I think I have always wanted to be able to share that passion with with other people. And I guess throughout my career, I found that the best way to do that are through education programs, and ultimately through communication programs. Because as my passion for the outdoor world and our environment has increased, of course, my concerns have increased as well. And so I have looked throughout my life for the, I think, the most successful ways to get people to change their behavior to help protect ourselves and to to help protect the natural world that we depend on so much. And Biodiversity Project is about 15 years old, and the organization sort of pioneered this idea of of values-based communications. And the idea is basically that 
the reason I, I care about and love nature is going to be very different from perhaps my neighbor or um, or any number of different people. And it's finding out why my next door neighbor might care is very important in helping that person develop a connection to the to nature or the environment so that they become themselves interested. Environmentalists have a really, really bad history of trying to convince other people to care about the environment in the way that they care about it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you love whales because you love whales, and that's why you want to save them, and you can be very passionate about it. But the person, again, say your next-door neighbor may not love whales, but may care about a different issue and still may be interested in helping save the whales, but for a very different reason. And so Biodiversity Project is all about changing people's behavior and having them do that based on reasons that are in, that feel important to them, not to the reasons I think it's important. How do you tap into individual preferences or individual values as they relate to the environment? Do you have a key set of questions? We do quite a bit of public opinion polling and research, and all of our questions are usually extremely targeted because we're usually looking at a very specific issue. So we have done work on the Great Lakes. Um, We have done work in the Mississippi River Basin in the 10 states that line the Mississippi River, the main stem states. And so, for example, in our Mississippi River research, we um, spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how people connect with the river. What, what in their minds, when they think of the Mississippi River, what do they think of? And by better understanding that, we can figure out how to shape our messages and our education formation in a way that becomes relevant to that person. And so what kind of responses have you gotten? Have they been, you know, sort of all across the board, very varied, or do they pretty much fall into just a few categories? Yeah, in our research, we do, we usually have a pretty large pool. And so we typically find that there is, yeah, it it definitely, I mean, there's always sort of a majority that answers one way or another. So the answers are not necessarily just, completely across the board, but we do absolutely see a lot of commonalities. And sometimes those commonalities, though, are based on geography. So the folks in Minnesota may have answered our questions very differently than, say, the folks in Mississippi. Both are quite valid, but both may relate to the river in very, very different ways. And it's important to understand those ways as opposed to just sort of trying to get somebody to care about something and do something because you think it's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really wise to get at the heart of what makes people care. And I can see that philosophy really very important to whatever we do. So from a dietitian standpoint, I need to know what it is that will help people care about the food that they eat. Mm-hmm. And so I, I see wonderful parallels here. Well, let me ask you something. I know that the Biodiversity Project spends about half of its work time on the Mississippi River Project. So why don't we talk a little bit about that project? We've had so much flooding recently, and there are so many agricultural issues that impact river quality. What keeps you up at night about the Mississippi River? Mm-hmm. See, what keeps me up at night about the river? The Mississippi River is certainly the biggest watershed in the United States. 
Mm-hmm. And it has equally large problems facing it. The things that I very am very concerned about are the runoff that goes into the river. And with that runoff, we have excess amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus. And we have some of the pesticides and herbicides that are used on our farmland fall off into a road into the water. And those sorts of things concern me quite a bit, mostly because the solutions are quite difficult. And it's not necessarily, it isn't really the farmer's fault right up front to say, you can't just look to them and say, okay, stop doing things this way. Because farming has evolved in a certain way so that they depend on some of these things or this is just the way farmers have been doing it for a very long time. And so it really needs to be sort of a multifaceted approach of both working with large agricultural companies and helping them sort of change the way that they their products and the way that, you know, we we would love to see some of the big ag companies not sell seeds for corn that requires certain high amounts of uh, fertilizer and pesticides or something like that. We would like to have them sell seeds for things that might be that maybe don't require those sorts of fertilizers and um, and pesticides. So, I mean, that's certainly one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to really work with farmers and figure out in a partnership how they might be able to do things differently, but not at a loss for them. Because the last thing we want to do is make farmers, you know, work any harder or or lose money or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, and then I think the third piece of that is going to be some regulation. And I know that's a really unpopular topic now, but we have some good laws in place. The Clean Water Act can do some very powerful things if we would allow sort of the EPA to do that. Mm-hmm. So I would say that all those chemicals running through our river, they get into people's water. They do so much damage. They cause the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. I think that is what keeps me up at night. Mm, me too, Jennifer. I, I share your concerns. And you know what's really interesting is that the President's Cancer Panel Report, which came out in April of 2010, I don't know if you've seen that, but one of the recommendations they make, which is very sad, is that they recommend that people use a water filter. Yeah. And what that says to me is that there's a lot of stuff getting into our water Many compounds we haven't even identified yet, but certainly the agricultural chemicals. And boy, what a hornet's nest that is, because you've got these big agribusinesses that are profiting handily from the sale of those products. You've got farmers who are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. And yet what we all share, I think, maybe finding common denominators is a strategy that you've used in communicating. But I think personally, I I try to use that strategy in saying, you know, It doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, what side of the aisle you're from in Congress. What matters is that we all have clean water to drink and that our children's lives are protected by not living in a polluted environment. Do you use those kinds of strategies in reaching people that are very diverse? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you look at some of the environmental problems, one issue that's really tangible is clean water. And it's something that you don't necessarily need to look into the future, but you can 
open your tap and get a glass of water and have a good reason to question whether or not there's something in there that may not be good for you. I mean, this issue is kind of here and now. And we have seen in some cases and typically in in farming communities where things, whether it's different kinds of fertilizers or pesticides or insecticides have seeped into people's wells and into their water systems. And it's um, made them very ill. And sometimes it's an, it's E. coli because it's, they live next to a big dairy farm or something like that. And sometimes, as I said, it might be a, a pesticide or, or herbicide. Certainly one of the big ones that's a concern and is banned in most of the rest of the world is atrazine, and yet we still use it, and we do find it in our waters, and it does cause blue baby syndrome, and the incidence of blue baby syndrome is on the rise, and it's caused by atrazine. Hmm. And I, I believe that the nitrate level in the water is linked to the blue baby syndrome directly from the nitrogen fertilizers that are applied to so many of our row crops. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yet another concern. Yes. I, I wanted to ask you with regard to some of the, you mentioned the livestock situation. Mm-hmm. And with climate change, you know, we're seeing what I perceive to be more violent storms, and perhaps, you know, it's just my perception right now, but I remember years ago there had been a terrible storm, and this was, this occurred in Iowa, and there were livestock, confined livestock or concentrated livestock feeding operations, or CAFOs, where the manure lagoons had overflowed, but the human sewage systems weren't working either, and because the health departments had to do a a triage of sorts, they couldn't even be concerned about the animal livestock, the the livestock manure, because they had to worry about the human sewage systems getting into the rivers. So I don't know what the Biodiversity Project is doing with regard to some of these confinement facilities, but I am very concerned that we have a large quantity of animal manure leaking out of of lagoons, getting into our waterways. What can we do as concerned citizens? The CAFO problem is is very big. And I do strongly believe that this is a situation where the federal government needs to step in in order to protect people's health mm-hmm. because it is not something that we can leave up to the the food production industry to to take action on their own. They will not take action unless it is required of them. Mm-hmm. And the CAFOs are pretty well unregulated. Now, it varies from state to state, and some states are trying to do a much better job than others. And it's very hard for the EPA to make new rules or enforce rules, particularly in this climate when their budget is getting cut so so poorly. And so one of the things we really need to do, basically, is to support the EPA. The EPA is doing wonderful things to protect our water, and yet their budgets are are being cut dramatically, and they're really being made out to be sort of the bad guy. Um, And that's just just not the case. Um, Mm -hmm. The things that they do do not hurt industry but they do protect people's health. And um, and if I had to pick one or the other, whether it was somebody's pop- pocketbook made a little fatter or somebody had clean water, I'd pick the clean water. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I usually put public health ahead of profits all the yeah. time, actually. 
If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Jennifer Browning. She's the executive director of a wonderful organization called the Biodiversity Project. And Jennifer, I discovered your organization several years ago, and I was mailed a booklet that I used in presenting to some environmental educators. It's called Life, Nature, the Public, Making the Connection, and it talks all about how to talk and how to educate about biodiversity. And I love some of the some of the messages in this booklet, like to talk about nature as part of being the web of life or to try to convey some sort of interdependence that we have with nature. I don't know that we all understand the complexities of that interdependence. Do you? No, I mean, I, I, I don't. I think that Science continues to learn more and more about the interconnectedness, and certainly it was not really something that was, I think, talked about a lot when, when say, we were in school. So right. I certainly think the adult population of today might be sort of unaware of how important that connectedness is. Another piece that is, I think, very hard to explain and, and equally important is to help people sort of understand this idea of ecosystem services. And that is all the incredible things that healthy ecosystems actually do to, uh, for us that we take for granted. And that may be the way um, wetlands clean our water. It's the way that forests and, and woodlands clean our air. Um, and those are just sort of two really basic examples. But we depend very heavily on having healthy ecosystems. But as we degrade those and take those away, we begin to lose their benefits. Um, and a good example of this actually is the flooding in the Mississippi River right now. We have destroyed tens of thousands of acres of wetlands. And wetlands not only clean our water, but they hold water. Wetland soils are special kind of special soil, and it has a, a fantastic ability to hold water. So during flooding, if we had our wetlands and our floodplains back along the sides of the river, the water would have a place to go, and the wetlands would naturally hold that water and decrease any flooding further downstream. Now, it we know the flood it 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 is a uh, I'm not saying wetlands are the solution, but wetlands are part of the solution for the flooding on the Mississippi River. But that's just an example, though, of how we really depend on natural, healthy systems. And scientists have this great description of it, you know, ecosystem services. But those words don't really mean anything to people. I mean, it's just sort of a strange concept. So, yeah, I've never um, heard that term before. And I really mm-hmm. like the ability to describe it to others. It is. It's great. And uh, what many scientists and economists are doing now is beginning to to quantify those services. Mm. So you could put in a water treatment plant or you could put in, you know, a much smaller water treatment plant and a large wetland complex and be able to deal with some of your pollution issues. So there's a great value in some of these ecosystem services, real dollar values, and we're beginning to figure out how important that is. And again, in the river, it's much cheaper to uh, restore a wetland than it is to build a levee. And and levees are important. Again, I don't want to say that, but wetlands and floodplains should be a big part of our system to protect people from flooding as well. 
Before our interview, we, we talked a little bit about the Farm Bill. And mm-hmm. here we're approaching the 2012 Farm Bill, and we're talking about ways to protect some of the conservation components of that bill. And once again, just like we were talking about with the EPA and budget cuts, it looks like a lot of those conservation programs are going to be cut. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, it actually is going to be coming the 2012 Farm Bill, the legislation is going to is sort of up for debate again soon. But what's much more imminent right now is figuring out the 2012 budget and how and what sort of cuts we're going to see in in the Farm Bill and where those cuts are going to land. And we often the, the Farm Bill in in effect, really should be called the food bill because I that's agree. really the bulk of the farm bill goes to food. That's where our food stamps program is and many of our other federal programs that basically help feed people and provide lunches to children at school. But in addition, of course, there are the programs that help agriculture and they include the um, subsidies to, that farmers receive for, for growing uh, for growing their crops, mm-hmm. and it also includes there's a there's some programs called the farm conservation programs, and there's about four or five of them, and in in general what they do is they provide money to farmers to help them perhaps build natural barriers along around their farm field so that it would protect from runoff, so or possibly to move a crop out of a natural uh, area that's a wetland, it's wet all the time, it's not even that great for farming, but this uh, this provides money to that farmer to allow him to take that land out of production and allow it to return to a wetland. Now, I understand that those conservation programs, however, are on the chopping block. They are on the chopping block. Definitely, there's um, have been a call for massive reductions, and I fear that if we reduce those programs now, that we will see basically a reversal in all of the progress that we have made. There has been progress. We do have less polluted runoff because of these programs. But if we begin to defund them, it not only stops us from getting new farmers involved, but current farmers who currently have land out of acreage and have been and have allowed that to return to a wetland, which protects in, in many cases water bodies from pollution, those will then revert to back to farmland because the farmer will not be supported um, anymore um, in keeping that land out of production. So this, and so we will see actually a backward slide if if we lose our farm bill conservation program. So do you think that the farmers won't continue those practices if they're not tied to an incentive program? I think that right now, for example, I mean, the price of corn is really, really high. Yes, and it it's very hard for a farmer to say, you know, no, I'm going to keep this wetland when, in fact, they could yeah. be making quite a bit more money by growing corn on that land. And if there's no incentive, then you're asking the farmer to do something that most of us wouldn't consider doing, which right. is 
would you see I'm going to work 10 more hours a week at my job, but I'm not going to get paid for it? I mean, we wouldn't consider that. And so it's sort of putting farmers in that same, in that mm-hmm. same position. That's very interesting. You know, I look at the, the whole crop distribution from a, a nutritional health perspective as well as the environmental one now that you're bringing to the table. And I just don't see how we can continue our farm policies as they are. They're not, they're not only hurting by promoting corn and soy production. We are not only hurting human health through the nutrients that we take in or not take in, but we're also harming our environment and our water systems. And something's got to change. What can you leave our listeners with as a as some action steps to take after hearing you speak about these detrimental effects? Well, one of our programs here, Biodiversity Project, is our One Mississippi program. And if you go to onemississippi.org, and that is the numeral one, one mississippi.org, you can actually sign up to be a river citizen. And a river citizen is somebody who basically says, hey, I I care about these issues, I care about pollution in the river, and um, I'd like to learn more about it, and I would like to potentially do something about it. And river citizens receive educational information, news information, and then as they arise, opportunities to speak up on behalf of the river. And so we would we provide river citizens an opportunity to say, hey, that money for those farm bill conservation programs are important. They're important to the farmer. They're important to bringing money into my community. They're good all around, and I don't want to see those cut. So it's a way to give people who care a voice. And um, we are all one one country. We are one Mississippi, even though we spread across so many states, and we all have share many of the same concerns. And so our One Mississippi program works to give a voice to people who are concerned about the river and concerned about these issues. So if if, if there are folks out there that are uh, interested in becoming a river citizen and joining our crew of over 2,000 people, we would love to have you. Well, that's wonderful. I've got to check that out and sign up myself. Oh, good. Um, How about with – we just have a couple minutes left, so I want to give you first an opportunity to leave our listeners with any other key messages or thoughts that I may not have tapped into. Well, wow, we've certainly covered a lot of things, but I guess I would – I think I would just really want to reiterate that the – this river runs through our country, and it is a very important part of our culture and our history and our environment. And it is important that we do step up and protect it, because in protecting the river, we are protecting our health and our livelihoods. So I would really encourage people to to learn more, and if they're interested, as I said, to uh, to become a river citizen. Well, Jennifer, I want to thank you very much for being my guest. I want to encourage our listeners to check out the biodiversityproject.org website. If you are a parent, a teacher, let's see, an outdoor enthusiast, a hunter, a fisherman, an eater, there is something at this website for you and a way to get involved. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today. I'll make sure we've got the Biodiversity Project website listed on our on our site. Great. And, and we can link from there to that one Mississippi project, yes? 
Yes, absolutely. Okay, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Jennifer, thank you so much for your time again. Thank you.